Welcome to Untangling Christianity. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. Hello and welcome to this podcast. My name is Greg Monteith. Today's episode is the sixth of ten, introducing and explaining a module of the First Steps curriculum. First Steps is the first level of curriculum within the Foundations of Flourishing program. Foundations of Flourishing helps participants acquire the essential skills, dispositions, and knowledge to develop a vibrant interplay between faith and life, understood as the basis for human flourishing, being our best, and living our fullest. The advantages, amongst others, of developing this vibrant interplay are that faith and life become complementary and mutually informing. Otherwise, they risk being conflictual and mutually undermining, such as when either faith or life is undervalued, leaving both of them disjointed and unintegrated. The Foundations of Flourishing program is designed to assist Christians to recognize and overcome the entrenched dysfunction within evangelical Christianity and to assist non-Christians to decipher and evaluate the accessible here-and-now value of Christianity. This dual approach overcomes two related problems that, left unattended, create alienation between and potentially within each group. First, it helps Christians to overcome small-mindedness and fear-based living in order to become well-rounded and fully functional. It does so by empowering them better to understand and embody their faith through lived experience and extra-biblical information sources. The serendipitous result is that their beliefs become more biblical while their practices become more credible to outsiders. Second, it allows non-Christians to reconsider the cultural consensus that Christianity is irrelevant. It does so by empowering them to engage with Christianity on terms that make sense to them, rather than being told to believe what Christians believe in order for Christianity to make sense. The serendipitous result is that investigating Christianity promotes becoming one's best self through love relationships that are truth-based. Finally, because this program holds love and truth, truth and love, to be co-equal and co-central to both human flourishing and to the character of the Christian God, Foundations of Flourishing is equally open to Christian and non-Christian perspectives. While, nevertheless, arguing that a particular functional form of evangelical Christianity maximizes both truth and love in tangible and understandable ways. This episode explores Module 5 of the First Steps curriculum, entitled Building a Conceptual Toolbox. As I've mentioned previously, there is significant dysfunction within the evangelical church in North America. One example of this dysfunction is the issue that I raised in Episode 169 entitled, Why Evangelicalism Fails. This issue is the widespread inability and or unwillingness of North American evangelical church leaders to accept challenge, critique, or even dialogue with those holding opposing views. So what exactly is a conceptual toolbox, and how does it help counteract evangelical dysfunction? Well, as I noted in episode number 169, One way that this dysfunction manifests within evangelical churches is that ministers or pastors are essentially expected to have, quote-unquote, all the answers on matters of faith. 
This breeds not only overconfidence in the pastor's knowledge, but also a slavish adherence to the pastor's perspective. In other words, if pastor knows the answer, then the only real need is to know the pastor's view on any matter related to one's faith. The result of over-reliance on church leaders is the development of what can be called deputized thinking, allowing someone else essentially to do my thinking for me. Yet abdicating one's responsibility to think through matters essential to one's life and one's faith is not simply due to the tendency to elevate excessively church leaders, but it is also due to evangelicals holding particular misconceptions and so being under-resourced in key regards. For example, a common misconception among evangelicals is that the Bible can be understood and applied to life correctly by any Christian without any particular skill or knowledge. Instead, it is taking time to read the Bible or being disciplined to do what Christians are, what Christians should do and living out Christian beliefs or being obedient to how Christians are called to live. Those are the hard parts. Reading the Bible, making sure you're doing it, and living out your Christian beliefs. Similarly, a related misconception is the view that belief or believing is not only key to becoming a Christian, but is also the key orientation for continuing as a Christian, or if you like, living for living the Christian life successfully. Again, I believe that these are misconceptions. On the one hand, both life and the Bible are complex, and so how we formulate or put together the relationship between faith and life, how we integrate them, is a matter requiring not only dispositions like discipline, but also skill and knowledge. On the other hand, the key requirement, both to becoming and remaining a Christian, is understanding. In other words, without understanding, belief is baseless, and ongoing Christian life is aimless. Belief is informed, motivated, and directed by understanding. So what about this notion of a conceptual toolbox? What is it and how does it help? My two points above demonstrate that being a faithful Christian means becoming conversant and skillful with concepts. In other words, because understanding is key to both Christian belief and Christian living, how and how well we understand life, the Bible, etc., depends on the ideas and concepts that we view to be relevant to such matters and on our willingness and ability to bring them to bear properly. The result is that our breadth of understanding is limited, one, by the range and nature of concepts we have at our disposal, and two, by where we've been taught that they apply, and three, by how and how well we've been taught to use them. So for Christians, growing one's toolbox of concepts and learning how to use them well and apply them pro appropriately is nothing short of essential, to the point that Christian maturity depends upon becoming conversant and skillful with concepts. Before examining the concepts that will be presented in Module 5 of First Steps, I want to highlight the most critical point about my claim that evangelical Christianity is broadly dysfunctional. Specifically, this dysfunction is all the more troubling because evangelicals are broadly unaware that it even exists. As such, both to substantiate my claim of broad dysfunction and to illuminate this dysfunction for those for whom it is a blind spot, the key step 
both in the podcast and in the entire integration project, will be to point out where and how evangelical Christianity has adopted as standards of faithfulness practices that perpetuate this dysfunction by keeping its participants from seeing it for what it truly is. So the key point will be pointing out where and how evangelical Christianity has adopted as standards of faithfulness, in other words, as essential components of what it means to be a Christian, practices that actually perpetuate this dysfunction by keeping its participants from seeing it for what it truly is. These are practices that actually, one, skew key relationships, misunderstand and collapse necessary tensions, and preference positives over negatives within the Bible and Christian life. And two, they're practices that segregate and silo evangelicals from valuable outside resources by eliminating the possibility that non-Christians could possibly have anything valuable to teach Christians about Christianity and or about living the Christian life. Substantiating my claim that Christianity offers the best possibility to maximize human flourishing and at the same time, empowering evangelicals to recognize and overcome this dysfunction means that the primary need in this miniseries and in general when connecting with evangelical Christians is not to offer solutions to the problem or even strategies for better engaging with God and living the Christian life. Instead, the primary need is to present the problem clearly and explain it thoroughly. For only once a problem is acknowledged can any form of solution be considered, let alone embraced. For this reason, each episode that introduces the Foundations of Flourishing program will first situate the module material in light of this current evangelical dysfunction. It will then explain how only material such as this, in other words, material that can effectively identify and, dis- and, and address these dysfunctions, and no other type of material, will be able to offer participants the resources to conceive of and develop a functional, robust, and mature Christianity. Thus, the same material used to combat evangelical dysfunction also fosters a Christianity that is both satisfying to its adherents and appealing to outsiders. This is because the skills, dispositions, and knowledge needed to overcome this dysfunction do so by contributing to the development of a vibrant interplay between faith and life. And the result, human flourishing, is both visible and appealing to all. So how is the lack of awareness and skill regarding concepts, let's call it a lack of conceptual fluency, contributed to evangelical dysfunction? I will cite three ways. First, without conceptual fluency, people develop polarized thinking and marginalize others. Second, without conceptual fluency, people develop limited, disconnected understandings of their world and themselves. Third, lacking conceptual fluency, people tend towards legalism, fear, and ignorance. Let's go over all three of these. First then, without conceptual fluency, we lack the tools to engage properly with complex ideas and issues. So we compensate by oversimplifying the complexities in order to reduce them to whatever elements we feel most comfortable with or perhaps most upset about. So whereas a healthy and functional approach to complex ideas and issues would see reason informed by emotion and also by experience, imagination, etc., 
this dysfunctional approach is really all about emotion. But emotion masquerading as reason. This approach not only suppresses nuance and subtlety for the sake of our comfort or our interest, it also contorts ideas or issues into something that they are not, for the sake of our need for control. The tendency to employ this approach as a, quote, thinking strategy, and I'm using that term loosely, is called reductionism. Now, because reductionism is both simplistic and emotion-driven, it always results in polarization, the sort of black and white, us and them thinking that cannot engage in discussion, but always tends towards dispute. With the result that people with dissenting views are sacrificed for the sake of our feelings about ideas and beliefs. So again, it's about emotions. What happens ultimately, because it cannot properly engage in discussions, but always tends towards dispute, is that those with dissenting views, the people themselves are actually sacrificed. The relations can be cut off for the sake of our feelings about these ideas and beliefs that we've simplified because we can't deal with their complexity. Second, when we lack conceptual fluency and tend towards reductionism, we are, by necessity, less able to engage broadly with possibilities because we can't recognize them as such and less comfortable with ambiguity because we are driven to simplify matters into two opposing options. So our understandings of ourselves, others, the world, and God are more likely to be flimsy or brittle, creating disconnection from real life. This disconnection has tangible impacts, such as reduced ability to set expectations that are appropriate to their contexts, being less able to balance the benefit of the doubt with criticism when it comes to the actions and motives of others, and also of ourselves. And particularly, being less able to perceive the complexity in the interplay between faith and life. This is similar to my earlier point about Christians focusing on obedience and discipline rather than on understanding and knowledge, but I'm going to take it further. Specifically, this last point is that Christians actually skew and or overplay exactly those biblical ideas needed to create and enforce theological understandings that normalize their two-dimensional reductionistic understandings. In other words, without conceptual fluency, theology is dictated by reductionism and so contributes to self-serving aims rather than contributing to their cure. So I'm going to repeat that one because it's a bit tricky. Specifically, the result of this last point is that Christians actually skew and or overplay exactly those biblical ideas needed to create and enforce theological understandings that normalize their two-dimensional reductionistic understandings. So in other words, without conceptual fluency, theology is dictated by reductionism, and so it contributes to self-serving aims rather than to their solution. Third, because dysfunction creates reductionism, and reductionism in in turn impedes one's ability to understand and grow from the complex interplay between life and faith, and as I mentioned, it results instead in what we might might call self-serving theology— this dysfunction predisposes Christians to practices that perpetuate it rather than challenge it. Specifically, this dysfunction predisposes Christians to a lack of skill, a lack of knowledge, and to dispositions that defend these two deficiencies rather than denounce them. Stated differently, 
Because a lack of conceptual fluency always leaves us without the necessary resources to engage broadly or generously, the only options left are narrow and meager ways of engaging with the world, others, ourselves, and especially God. Legalism, fear, and ignorance are the markers of this narrow, meager approach. And of course, the key driver here is fear. Fear that we are not smart enough to deal with the complexities of life and faith. Fear that we are not dedicated enough to take on the responsibility for thinking these matters through for ourselves. Or fear that we are not loved enough to fail at either of these and still be accepted and valued. The key signs, then, of this evangelical dysfunction are that it promotes and perpetuates ways of being that, if left unchecked, will determine a Christian's understanding of their world and their faith, and it will allow reductionism and narrowness to retain the power position by eliminating or silencing perspectives that would challenge it and risk defeating it. Ironically, this is particularly so with the Bible. So where the Bible clearly offers both affirmation and critique of human actions and motives, a dysfunctional perspective will consistently misinterpret the Bible as offering only or mainly affirmation of oneself and only or mainly critique of others. We might say oneself and one's group or one's tribe or one's church and critique of those outside of that group or tribe or church. The nature of this dysfunction is that it silences what it claims to value the most, but does so in such a way that its practitioners not only hide this fact from themselves, but are actually convinced that their practices reflect and honor biblical standards above all things. So this dysfunction is eminently self-serving and self-deceitful. And I'll be speaking more on self-deceit as we cover modules 7 and 8. Yet this dysfunction avoids either fact being drawn to attention by incorporating views and practices as, again, what I've called standards of faithfulness that direct the Bible's critical edge primarily outward while orienting its affirmative edge primarily inward. So what concepts are introduced in Module 5 and how can they help participants overcome this dysfunction that I've been detailing? I want to highlight three concepts that are essential to Christian growth and maturity. First, heterodoxy. Second, truth values versus truth claims. Third, the concept of complementary oppositions or productive tensions. I'll present each by describing how their respective domains currently contribute to evangelical dysfunction and how, by incorporating these concepts, evangelical Christianity can move beyond dysfunction towards robust vitality. First, heterodoxy. Heterodoxy is a broad and somewhat ambiguous concept applied when a view or doctrine varies from official or orthodox positions. As such, heterodoxy is something of a fairly broad middle space between two very well-known religious words. One is orthodoxy and the other is heresy. In Christian contexts, heresy and orthodoxy represent or typically represent, binary opposites, where one is good, being orthodoxy, and the other is bad, being heresy. Interestingly, this seems like a polarized relationship resulting from reductionism. It actually is. This dysfunctional opposition typically acts as a scare tactic within evangelical Christianity and is used, whether by church leaders or by individuals on themselves, to dampen curiosity muffle dissent, 
or conceal one's true views. More than anything, this polarized understanding stunts personal growth and communal flexibility, and obviously, it promotes fear. The addition of heterodoxy first allows us to perceive that orthodoxy, or heresy, is a false pair. In other words, the pair orthodoxy or heresy, just as a set, alone, is a false pair and that each part represents instead two end regions on a spectrum. Understanding then that our beliefs are on a spectrum of conformity naturally promotes questioning in a spirit of curiosity and honesty, as heterodoxy effectively gives Christians permission to admit that they believe differently than their church, their pastor, etc., without the fear that doing so makes them less Christian, or particularly not Christian at all. Second, truth values versus truth claims. The Bible and biblical claims are presented in evangelical settings as representing truth or as being the truth, often either with a capital T or where the capital is implied. In dysfunctional evangelical culture, this truth is used to coerce conformity within Christian communities and to separate them from outsiders. Questioning truth not seeking to clarify or understand it, but truly doubting its validity and proposing that other truths perhaps are superior, or even suggesting non-biblical measures for evaluating biblical truth, is viewed as at least problematic. Or where it is permitted or even encouraged, it's expected shortly to give way to clarifying and then accepting. No churches that I know of have procedures for fostering an extended questioning of biblical truth. But notice, the entire focus is on biblical claims. Yet even the very notion of believing in something defies the idea that a claim constitutes or establishes its own truth. For instance, we believe a claim because we think we have good reason to believe it is true, not simply because it is a claim to truth. So we believe that this or that is the lowest price because we compare it with other prices and see that it is indeed the lowest. Thus, we believe claims because we think we have enough evidence to show that they are true. This is the difference between the claim that something is true and that which supports or proves that claim actually being true, its truth value. Christian churches often try to persuade people, both Christians and outsiders, that biblical claims are true simply by virtue of being biblical. Not only is this a circular notion, and that they provide no truth value to substantiate the claim. And not only does it not touch on the fact that all of our understandings of the Bible are interpretations, and that there are a number of valid possible interpretations, and of course raising the question of how we would understand and evaluate between them on the basis of how we go about interpreting something correctly. Worst of all, in many cases, Christians do not seem even to know what would constitute such a truth value, which, again, points to a dysfunctional assumption about the Bible being truth without any need for substantiation. This in turn makes Christians seem disconnected from real life, because no one believes something about prices or jobs or family relationships without at least some relevant evidence. And it leaves Christians, or rather non-Christians, pardon me, with little option other than to view Christianity as irrelevant because nothing is offered other than the Bible to substantiate biblical claims. 
Broadening our understanding of truth with the concept of truth claims versus truth values allows Christians to be more honest about their hesitations and will encourage churches to establish protocols for extended questioning of biblical truth claims, including such things as assessing whether the purported biblical claim actually reflects the best biblical exegesis. This, in turn, will make it possible for non-Christians to engage productively with Christian claims and to see those claims as potentially relevant for real life. A complete win-win outcome. Third, complementary oppositions or productive tensions. As with the discussion of truth values versus truth claims, to which it is related, this is a new and detailed concept that will require some elaboration. In fact, the concept of complementary oppositions or productive tensions is one that I have encountered nowhere in evangelical churches. Instead, we find the notion of biblical principles. In other words, evangelical churches typically teach that biblical truth functions as propositions or sentences, and these propositions are then used to form principles, principles that inform Christian theology and practice. These principles include dispositions that Christians should cultivate, such as humility, trust, belief, etc., and points of doctrine that they should emphasize, such as the continual aid of the Holy Spirit. Further, Christians are often staunchly, sometimes absolutely, of the opinion that these principles do not contradict each other, just as they hold biblical truth to be non-contradictory. As such, Christians who ignore or violate biblical principles are likely to be viewed as acting incorrectly and sinning. For example, when we are not humble, we risk being proud. When we are not trusting, we risk being faithless. When we are not believing, we risk rejecting our beliefs. When we are not embracing the power of the Spirit, we are living on our own strength, etc. And given the view that a biblical principle, like biblical truth, is non-contradictory, This leaves little room for Christians to disagree and few resources to navigate edge cases. However, instead of principles, both the biblical text and human existence demonstrate what could be called complementary oppositions, such as between humility and confidence, trust and suspicion, belief and skepticism, the continual aid of the Holy Spirit, and the comprehensive effect of sin. When they remain in tension with each other, rather than being reduced to a hierarchy where one pole dominates the other, these pairs allow greater access to truth rather than less because they become complementary and mutually informing, with each pole sometimes correcting, sometimes corroborating the other. In all three of the above cases, the addition of each concept has a number of positive effects. One, The concept shows the domain as it currently exists to be stilted and incomplete, and the concept expands it appropriately. Two, the concept allows for Christians readily to adopt certain beneficial postures, such as curiosity, honesty, rigor, and valuing ambiguity, that promote dialogue and truth. Three, the concept resituates church members relative to each other and to leaders, in encouraging all participants to think through matters both for themselves and yet to be interreliant. In Module 5, other concepts will be discussed, such as partnership as stewardship versus surrender, the relationship of eminence versus evidence, and the concept of being 
relativistic versus embracing relativism. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Untangling Christianity podcast. A summary and resources for this episode are at our website, untanglingchristianity.com. If you'd like to join our private Facebook group or reach us by email, send your requests, questions, or even a simple hello to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is provided by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license.